Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 81. Today's guest is Jay Papazan. Jay Papazan, along with Gary Keller, the founder of Keller Williams Real Estate, co-authored The Runaway Bestseller and one of my favorite books of all time, The One Thing. The One Thing has sold more than 3 million copies and has been translated into more than 42 languages. The book has been on over 500 bestseller lists, including number one in the Wall Street Journal business book list. I was so excited to get Jay on the show. Jay is such a big thinker. He's a phenomenal writer. He shares some great ideas on how to be more productive, how to focus better, the creative process, and how to get out of your own way so you can be the best person for your families, your colleagues, and for yourselves. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with best-selling author Jay Papazan. And remember, life is built, not born. Jay Papazan, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm excited to be here. It's such an honor to have you on. Jay, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Oh, gosh, I'm a husband. I'm a father. We could go down that route. The great question, right? What I do for a living, I guess, might be more to the point. I think of myself as a creative a writer and an executive. I wear all of those hats on my daily basis. I started off as a writer, I became an editor in New York, working briefly at HarperCollins. After marrying my wife, migrated to Austin, where I found a job writing at Keller Williams, a, at that time, a very, very small real estate company. And then I've been with that organization for 22 years, partnered with the founder on multiple companies, and we've written six best-selling books to date. And the one thing, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, being by far the biggest bestseller of the bunch. What I'd like to cover is I want to talk about your journey. One, how you spent some time in France. Understand you got your writing start in France. Start there. How you and Gary Keller hooked up to create one of just the great companies in the country, Keller Williams. And this book, one of my favorite of all time, The One Thing, a couple of takeaways, great life lessons, business lessons. It's just one of those books, you're, you're a better person after you read it. And uh, TED Talk too. It's all about time. Just the way you approach time management and focus. I really appreciate and want to cover that if that's okay with you. Oh, all of that. Everything's on the table. I can't awesome. wait. Before we do that, I'd like to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee and stayed there until I graduated from undergraduate. A lot of my family is still there. My dad passed away this past year. But my mom, my sister, my nieces and nephew all still live there. But my family comes from the Mississippi, the Delta. They were all farmers and teachers. That was kind of the two things that stood out in our family. And we're recording this the week before Thanksgiving, and I'm going back to the Delta this week to probably hook up with about 45 Papazans and extended family to have a lot of food. Mississippians know how to make things with good fats in them. So barbecue <laughs> and caramel cake. So my dad went to junior college, ended up becoming an engineer, and then Within, I guess he was with light, gas, and water for close to 25 years, but he left as the CEO and president and then became CEO and president of a biomedical firm. So I got to watch someone very much would have been appropriate for you to interview. He just made himself, came from very humble beginnings, became an executive that took companies public. So that was one of my role models in business. But that's kind of the story of my youth. I fell in love with France. I think we were heading that direction. Mm -hmm. And so... I knew that I wanted to either go to writing school or law school. I wasn't sure which. I got two degrees and two minors in college because I just couldn't decide. I had English. I had French. I had minors in history and law. And then I got a job translating in Paris for a, a biomedical company and spent about two and a half years living in Paris and also doing a little 
I had some fun trips to Italy. I had a good friend that bought a house there. And so we would take overnights and work on that cabin. That was great. I did a lot of writing there, mostly fiction. And that's where I really honed in. It's like, I want to go and get an MFA in writing. Mm-hmm. So I did mostly short story writing when I was there. When you talk about my beginnings as a writer, yeah. maybe I was trying to follow the old Hemingway path, you know, drink wine in cafes <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, it's a, that's definitely where I got a lot of space to do it. And though I did that for two and a half years and a kid from Tennessee, I was a reader, always been a reader since I was like in fifth or sixth grade, always had a book in front of me, but seeing the world versus exploring it through books is very eye-opening. And mm-hmm. probably the biggest thing, there was a presidential election while I was there that I got to vote in. But seeing American politics from another country gives you amazing perspective on what we call liberal and conservative and all of those things. A lot of wisdom came from that trip in terms of just my sense of who we are and how we fit into the world. What election was going on at the time you were there? It was the first Clinton election. Okay, Clinton and Bush going at it. My first election, I got to vote in. I voted for George Bush Sr. And then I voted for Clinton. And I can't remember who was running against him. So I understand your writing career started writing short stories in France. Kind of did your version of Hemingway. (laughs) Going to the cafe and write. That's so cool. How'd that start? Where'd your love of writing come from? It just, I love books. When I was a kid, I was very small. I was a very late bloomer. I like to tell people like between ninth and 10th grade, I grew so much. My knees were bigger than my thighs. Like our class was only 110 or 15 people. It was a medium sized high school. And I had a girl in my class that was very popular. And in 10th grade, I sat by her and she asked me, and so we'd been seventh, eighth, ninth grade in the same class. She asked me what school I transferred from. So like I went through like a a late physical transformation and being tall was helpful, but I mostly was kind of a bookworm. I was a nerd. I hung out with, and they called our table and lunch, the intellectuals, because a lot of the people there were technically advanced. We did play sports, but we played soccer, which was back then we got to share the volleyball coach. And that was the, the only facilities they gave us in Tennessee back then. I think we were the fifth or sixth soccer team in our high school's history. It was just such a new sport back then. So we just were all kind of oddballs. So I love books. That was my refuge. And I read genre books back then, fantasy, sci-fi, horror, like a lot of teenagers do. But I remember having this kind of dream, like books for me were a place that I could go and they benefited me, right? They gave my imagination a place. Mm -hmm. I just knew that someday I wanted to do something like that for other people. And I get to do that with nonfiction now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a little bit more material. My my number one value is impact. And so if our books make an impact, that's how I win more than anything else. That's what your number one value is impact. That is so cool. So how did you make your way from Paris writing short stories? Take us to how you wound up in Austin, Texas, working with Gary and Keller Williams. How's that transformation happen? Sure. I mean, just to be clear, I never got published my short stories. I didn't even submit them. I was just yeah. writing, right? Yeah, sure. And I used those to submit to NYU. I went, I submitted to Iowa and Montana and one other school, Amherst. And I got into NYU and I didn't expect to. It was a little bit more prestigious program. It wasn't an MFA. It was an MA. I could get a PhD if I wanted to after that. And I ended up accepting it because I had, I think I shared with you before we started recording, I've got family in New York and Staten Island and New Jersey. And so I had reasons to go. And one of my passions for reading, one of my cousins worked in publishing. She worked Mm -hmm. in the law departments of publishing contracts. But every year she would box up 20 or 30 books and just ship them to me because in publishing, you don't get paid, but you get free books. And, And I got to study with Tony Shapiro, I got to work with E.L. Doctorow, some really amazing writers, and met some good friends that are still friends for life, and then jumped from there into publishing. I was in New York for almost seven years. I worked at HarperCollins, I guess, for maybe five of those. You start on the bottom, you're an editorial assistant, and then I remember it was a big deal when I was assistant editor, right? Because now the, the base was editor, not assistant. And when they say editorial assistant, like fetching coffee, I was typing rejection letters. I mean, it was grunt work, but you got to work with books. That was where I met my wife. We fell in love and got married in upstate New York on a friend's farm. And incidentally, and like within 30 miles of where 
our first Papazan entered the country and registered for the first time. And then we both wanted to get out of New York. That's not where we wanted to start a family. We were mm-hmm. very poor. Publishing, I used to tell you, say, it's a high prestige job with poor pay. And I was even told by one of my bosses, said, Jay, there's a line of PhDs that would wrap around the corner that would like your job. They have better degrees than you do, and they will take less money because people want to work with books. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get your incremental races, but don't get caught up in how much money you make here. The privilege is working in books. And I got a lot of free books, some of which I still carry around from house to house that I haven't gotten around to reading. But I'm like, damn it, I'm going to, this is part of my pay. (laughs) So Wendy and I meet up there. We quit our jobs because we both love to travel and do everything in storage. And we did our honeymoon as a five-month backpacking trip. We did France, Italy, North Africa. And while we were there, we were trying to figure out where we want to live. Yep. And she had spent some time in Austin in college. And so in January of 2000, we came to Austin, fell in love with it. When you leave New York where it's like black slush and it's an island, people forget like the cold wind coming off the bay. Winters there can be tough. Austin, it was like 78 degrees. <laughs> I was wearing a V-neck undershirt like the whole weekend. Everything felt dirt cheap. Like I would order a bar expecting it to cost seven to eight bucks and it'd be like 250. Like, Here's for everyone. But it was also like it's a university town and it was young and it felt accessible. This was in 2000. So we moved there without jobs in February. I freelanced for that summer. I think I made $18,000. Nothing. But I got a couple of prestigious publications, Texas Monthly, Memphis Magazine, that sort of thing. And when he just said, get a job, not so much for the money, but because I was kind of a recluse. I'm an introvert. I was hanging out with our cat at home. And, you know, (laughs) you can only like, write travel journals like so many hours. You can only call editors for work. I would do my lead generation. I would do my writing. And then I would like play Diablo for two hours. But she's like, you need to get out and meet people. And that's, so it was in September of 2000, I took a job as a newsletter writer for KW. And back then, Keller Williams, there were 6,700 agents and there were only 27 employees. I was number 27. Okay. And today... We're in 50 countries. We have over 180,000 associates. And I think just the KWRI proper, we're pushing about 450 employees today. And that's very slim compared yeah. to our editors. Uh, we run lean and mean still, um, kind of like perpetual startup mode. But a couple of years into that journey, I met Gary Keller. I've been bouncing around jobs. I love the entrepreneurialism here. I was always a creator that had an eye towards business. And I remember, I'm going to jump back in time. Yeah, My thesis advisor was E.L. Doctorow. And he wrote The Waterworks, The Book of Daniel, he had the National Book Award, but he was named, E.L. was Edgar. And he was named after Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. And one of my favorite spots where Wendy and I would go to dinner when we could afford it, there was a little Italian wine bar called Il Buco. I think it means the cave. Uh-huh. And it was down, I think, Grand Street. It was down in Soho. But it has a wine cellar that dates back hundreds of years. And you could go down there and drink wine. And supposedly that cellar is where Edgar Allan Poe was inspired to write The Cask of Amontillado, which most every high school sophomore had to read about the guy burying the guy alive in in a wine cellar. And I went to Yale Doctorow because I was running our literary magazine at NYU. And I said, will you do a fundraiser for us? Will you read Edgar Allan Poe in the cellar that inspired it and we'll sell tickets and raise money for the liquor literary magazine. And I remember he looked at me and he said, I'm going to decline. And he goes, Jay, you're kind of entrepreneurial, aren't you? And it was an insult, by the way. He kind of said it with a smile, but a lot of people that want to be fiction writers and creatives, they, they think that anybody who dives into the business aspects of it and wants to be successful is a commercial sellout. And it's horrible culture. It's horrible because so many of them could have so much more success if in addition to mastering their craft, they would understand contracts Mm. and commerce, right? You have to, if you want to be an independent business person, today we have this thing called creators. They are on Instagram, but they're creating fun stuff, but they're doing it to make money. And at least there's no stigma attached to that. But in the fiction world, there was. 
So anyway, um, I loved the entrepreneurialism of KW. It's been growing from 6,700 agents to 180,000. It's been a wow. rocket ride. We're multiple executive hats. I've started about four different departments. I run about three companies that I'm partnered with Gary and my wife and I own 11 total. So like this French English major got to level up and I still get to do creative work. Yeah. I get to talk to you today. It's fun. And, but I also get to be a business person, which my dad, I got to see him. He never did the creative. He did the business. So I get to honor both sides of my personality. Yeah, a couple of there's so much there to unpack. One, you mentioned creatives that don't want to sell out and either monetize their work. And I could conceptually see where they're coming from, but like just think if they monetize, meaning they promoted it and they sold it and connected more people, right? Serve more people. Fiction, like you could change people's minds, you could give them a different perspective, how to look at the world, their life, their family, their job, right? Like yeah. they don't look at it, like you can help people by becoming an entrepreneur and serving them with your brilliant ideas, right? Even if they're not brilliant, say they're very good. You do that, like you're helping people when you're monetizing your work. Does that make sense? Yes. I see zero conflict in that. Yeah, no. But a lot of people don't. That's not why I grabbed impact, but I, I just looked up and most of my big decisions that I regretted were ones where I was not making an impact. Yeah. And the ones, even if they were hard and miserable, but I made an impact, I felt fulfilled. Yep. So like my three values are impact, family, and abundance. Wow. And I use that word a lot because it's something I carry with me everywhere. But I, I would go to an artist and say, like, how are you going to measure the impact? How will you know you've been successful when you write this book? And a lot of them, the finish line is getting published. And I just try to encourage people to think bigger. Mm-hmm. Getting published is something it's a lot easier to do today than it used to be right? Because you can self-publish and do okay. Ultimately, don't you want your work to reach an audience? That's how like that fiction for me had a huge impact on my life because I was like this awkward teenager and it gave me a place to go and gave me a love of language and all of those things. I said, don't you want to reach someone? But a lot of authors, they're writing for themselves and the finish line is just getting published. And I just think that's small thinking. I think they could think bigger and without anyway undermining their art do a few things to maximize their audience and therefore have a greater impact with their careers so that's a soapbox item that we don't have to go into that's one of the reasons we both love seth godin someone else that you've interviewed he's someone who i think of as a pure creative that is also mastered business at a high level Uh, like seth one of his sayings is it's not art until you share it with the world like if you wrote in your journal and wrote these beautiful poems or stories if you yeah. just keep it in your journal or in your hard drive and no one reads it but you, it's not art. It's just writing. It becomes art when you have the courage to share it with others, right? Then you talk about that. the next, yeah. You talk about the next step where you now let's monetize it. You know what I mean? Like, let's get paid for what you do. That's really cool. How about how'd you connect with Gary Keller and how did you transfer to real estate? So you have this, your writing, your creative short stories, and then you go from France to Austin. How did you know real estate's going to be my jam? How did you figure that out? I took a job as a newsletter writer. So I just, There was no big publishing in Austin. And so I just took a job as a newsletter writer. I then bounced around to two or three positions. And I saw that someone was working on a book cover in our tech department, a guy named Brad. And I thought he was freelancing at work. And I didn't care. I just said, hey, are you working on a book? So I'm like, wow, I get to talk about books. And he said, Dave and Gary are writing a book. And Dave is Dave Jinks, who was one of our original. we, We used to write as three of us. And I ran into Gary in the bathroom a few days later, and I just said, hey, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember I used to work at HarperCollins Publishers? And he clearly had forgotten. And so he called me into his office. He laid out a vision for writing 13 books, the first of which was called The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. He had this vision that it would be a bestseller and all of this. And I just said, I don't think it'll be a bestseller. And he asked me how many copies it might sell. And I said, how many offices do you have? And I think it was 14,000 back then. And I just said, you're using it for your business, which is really smart. So I bet you can sell 50,000. That would be a hugely popular book. A lot of the people you think sell millions sell less than 50,000. So it was a big number even back then. He clearly wasn't happy with it. And so he kept selling me on his vision. And he laid out five books that he and Dave were using as kind of models for how to think about their book. Two of them were books I'd edited when I was at HarperCollins. One was a book called Body for Life, 
which is a weightlifting book, but it was a paradigm changer. At the time, people thought that you had to do cardio to burn fat. And Bill Phillips with his book broke through that and said that weightlifting was actually more effective. And that was what Gary loved about it. There was a section called Myths and Truths, and he was dispelling them with fact. And then there was another book. It was by the soccer star Mia Hamm that I had the privilege of working on. It was called Go for the Goal. He loved the fact that Mia had chosen to feature a teammate in each chapter. So it was Tisha Venturini on heading, and it was blah, 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 because she's actually pathologically shy. That would be the way I would call it. She really hates the spotlight, but only does it for the girls. So she chose to move the spotlight onto her teammates for her own book. But that became an idea that we implemented. And I showed him that I'd worked on those books. I said, well, my name's in the acknowledgements. And he pretty much hired me on the spot. So we spent about, I had 30 days to give him a business plan. He had paid like 10 or 12 grand to some coach to help him write a book. And he had a one page document on how to write a book. That was what he got for 10 grand. And I was like, that might be useful in the writing of the book, but that'll get you nowhere to do a published book. So I had 30 days to give him a business plan. And then in about 90 to 100 days, we wrote The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, Dave Jinks and Gary, providing the intelligence. And I was the writer capturing it and putting it on the paper. It didn't sell 50,000. It sold 100,000 the first year. And to date, it sold almost 1.6 million. Wow. So that's one of those weird niche books that solved a very big problem for an industry at just the right time. We got rejected, I want to say by over 20 publishers. That fall, they all started calling because we just had it up on Amazon and they could see that it was the number one book in that category. And we eventually worked with McGraw-Hill and they republished it in 2004. And then it's been with them ever since. Wow. So anyway, that's how I got hooked up with Gary. I had a publishing background yeah, and I knew how to take words and turn them into a book. And I knew the people who could help us. Yeah. And so that was where our partnership started. I remember him interviewing me about where I wanted to be. And we went through the interview process during this. Like it was, I thought of this as a hundred day interview basically. Okay. And I kind of passed because we wrote a book that was successful, but he asked me, where do you want to be in five years? And I said, I want to be an executive. And how much do you want to be making? I was like, I remember just kind of gulping because back then I was the lowest paid employee in the building. Writers don't make a lot of money. I was like, I want to make $100,000. And I just remember, it's very hard to think big for yourself sometimes. Sure. That was more than twice my salary back then. Right. And so I was like, $100,000. And what I love about my partner today is he didn't judge it or anything. He just wrote it down. It's like, what will that do for you? And just started really exploring it. Within about three years, we'd written another book, actually written two more, but published another one that became a bestseller, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And I drove almost all of that, did 120 interviews with millionaires, which was transformative in itself, and then outlined the book. And then we all wrote it together. And that was when he made us partners in that business so that we would have a win when the book sold that first book where you're the writer, are they in the room just talking out loud and you're just typing concepts on the the keyboard or are they writing it down and you craft it your own? How does that process work? I don't even think I had a laptop back then. Okay. I think you did most of your work on a desktop. Okay. Uh, That's back in the days where the, I mean, like even the IMAX were the big. Oh yeah. yeah, Big. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it might be a little beyond that. Maybe they'd gone to the screen thing. I think maybe that. Okay. But what they did is they would outline the book and I was just had a notebook. Yeah. And we had flip charts. And that's still one of the ways that we do a lot of our creative. These are whiteboard or flip charts, but we prefer flip charts because when they're, if you get an idea down, you just strip it off and we tape it to the wall and we can, yeah. it can stay, it, we don't have to erase it. Yeah. It's powerful. We can refer back to it. Yeah. And so we had put it in order, switch it around, put something in front, put something in the back. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we had a war room that we would work in every man. We were following an outline. And they would come in and just brain dump all the ideas. And it was my job then to turn that into a written draft by the following morning. So from 8.30 to 10.30, say, we would maybe 11.30, we would do the brainstorming. We would break. They would go do their executive jobs. I would go into an office that was really warm because the sun hit the side of the building and it wasn't insulated well. I just remember being 
crazy hot in there. <laughs> I would put the flip charts up and then I would start banging away. It was a period where I grew a lot as a writer because I had to write 10 to 14 finished pages every day. Wow, that's a lot. And I also learned, I've written about this recently. I wrote and put it on the wall, just the saying, discipline is freedom. Because what I realized is I would come out of the, the brainstorming session. And here are two people that had a combined like 30 or 40 years of experience in real estate. They're talking about concepts I didn't really understand. You shared, you, you've had a conversation with Derek Sivers mm-hmm. and their brain just moves so fast. Yeah, crazy. And I am, I'm a deep thinker, but I'm not a fast thinker. And so it was just a workout just to capture and have some semblance of understanding. Yeah. What I always wanted to do was go take a break, go walk, go get lunch, yep. rest my mind, and then go write. Yep. And, but that would start a period where I would start pushing it into the future. Yeah. And I would yep. be like, oh, you know what? I should probably do this. <laughs> and then you start procrastinating and your anxiety keeps going up. And then I would end up writing till nine o'clock at night. Yeah. And then I finally kind of figured out that my best days were the days that I pulled the flip charts off and I went straight to the keyboard and I made measurable progress before I would take a break. I would capture it all. I would get my outline down all while it was fresh. And I just thought that little bit of discipline it took to do the hard thing in the moment versus put it in the future. Like when I would do that, I felt light as a feather I would sometimes be done with my main job about two in the afternoon. I'd be like, what am I going to do for the next three hours? And I could get ahead and it was just liberating. And so it felt like a, like a Stalin era poster, right? <laughs> it could have had like a hammer and a sickle on it, but discipline is freedom. Yeah. But it became this mantra for me that say, eat the frog, whatever the saying is, a hard thing that I want to avoid as fast as possible. And that's the spirit of the one thing. If you knock out your number one priority in the morning, it's very liberating to the rest of your day. So that was where we started. And then today, Dave Jinx has passed away. He left our partnership long before that. But it's just Gary and I, basically 50-50 partners on the books. And it's been a lot of fun. I I got to publish a book, Your First Home, earlier this year. First off, thank you for sharing that. A couple of things there. One, you said discipline equals freedom. Are you familiar with Jocko Wellink? Uh, Jocko I, I am familiar, but I'm not like deep. I don't have a deep well, knowledge, but yeah. That's one of his main sayings, discipline. You want freedom, but you need discipline. Discipline will create your freedom. And exactly. then Hemingway, we spoke about Hemingway earlier, your, your Hemingway period in France when you started writing short stories. There was a quote, someone says, how do you start writing? What's your writing process look like? He's like, first, I clean out my refrigerator. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> you find everything that needs to be done in the house. I clean my sock drawer out. It's so funny. Like, you just put, keep pushing it off in the future. And then just the anxiety builds, it builds, and there's a point where you just got to just get to work, right? There was a period, I think, where Hemingway would, and when he was in Paris, he would go to a hotel and write standing up. And I think there is a gift in having a place that you go to work. Because Mm -hmm. if you're writing from home, well, maybe I should walk the dog. Boy, my wife would appreciate it if I emptied the dishwasher. Yep. I think there's lots of ways that we rationalize our way out of work. But if we're in an environment where we've just taught our brain, like, this is where I go to work. Yep. You can flip that switch a little faster. Got to get out of your house. The dishwasher, it sounds so crazy. That's one of my things that the dishwasher, it's running at full. And there's something I need to do, like write or podcast or edit a podcast. Let me get the dishwasher first. My wife would love that. Yeah. So crazy how you play mind games against yourself, right? Oh, well, our marriage is more important in the grand scheme than this project, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's but, easy It's easy to rationalize. It is. Uh, so you uh, just have to remove yourself from that environment so you mm-hmm. can get more work done. Absolutely. Let's transfer over. I could talk about this all day and to be respectful of your time. The One Thing book, a couple things, a book you wrote with Gary. <laughs> Well, close to 2 million copies. Last thing I saw, last thing I saw online, 2 million we're, copies. We're about sold. to print the next edition and it'll have 3 million on it. Wow. We're at 2.9 now. And Is it really? Crazy. 42 languages, I believe. 500 national bestseller lists. Just one of those books. I lead a sales team here in the Philadelphia, New Jersey. We have a book club quarterly. And the first book when I took the team over, where everyone buys it and we talk about it, was The One Thing. That was the book oh, we started. Great. It's a book we started off with. Anyway, so let's get started. The takeaway, the big question that I learned in the book is, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will become easier or unnecessary? 
right? And could you just speak to that premise of the book? What's that mean to you? Well, we kind of hit it, right? Like at this moment in time, what is my true number one priority? It's not like we get to carry one thing all the time. We all have, like, I've got aging parent. I've got teenagers going off to college. We have multiple priorities we have to juggle. But at any given moment, if you ask that question, not only should you be given, like, this is my true priority right now, but we're also looking for the 80-20 principle, this idea of for that priority, what's the most leveraged thing I could do, right? So how can I advance it the most? That's that easier unnecessary part at the end. You're looking for the biggest lever you have in your life for that current priority. And I was really worried, Joe. I was very worried when we were writing the book. I was like, what if people don't know the answer? What if they just don't know? And Gary was like, I don't think that's something we have to worry about. He just kind of brushed it off. He's got that entrepreneurial gut that sometimes is incredibly accurate, even if he can't articulate why. And what I came after teaching this to tens of thousands of people, I think everyone, if they have a one thing, if they don't know the answer, it's because they're not stopping to ask the question. It is probably less than 5% of the time that someone asks that question and they truly don't know. And we say then, if you don't know your one thing, then your number one thing is figuring that out. And there's a process for doing that. But that gets you into your priorities. And if you're doing your number one priority, and you're trying to live a life where that's your default, right? When I come home, what's my number one job? For me, that's usually going to be, um, it should be to ask my wife how her day was and sit and chat with her. My neuroses is I go and make the coffee up for tomorrow. I'll change out of my work clothes and then I'll sit in the couch. And she knows this about me. And that's part of my, I'm leaving my work brain and coming to my home brain. So she allows me that. And then I go straight to, Hey, what's for dinner tonight? What are we doing? Blah, 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 blah. And I think at any moment you can ask that question and you get great clarity around like for that relationship, she wants time together. She wants to talk. She wants to catch up. And I do too. I just have to be present. I can't be thinking about work while we're doing it. Yeah, that's so hard sometimes. I love that transition. I kind of do the same thing a little bit when I walk in. You have that transitional period. might take no more than five minutes, but you switch from work mode to like home mode. And that transition period is so important. And uh, everyone has their own thing. I was going to say, I think it's doubly hard with people doing hybrid work. If you're working from home, when are you home and when are you at work? And I think that here would be like a, if people are just really stop what you're doing and just listen, choose when you're going to work, right? And put boundaries around that. I'm going to work from eight to five, whatever that is, right? Or five to six, and then I'm done. And then try to be the best you can be within the, that time frame. And it's not about how long we work. Otherwise, billionaires, there would be like, how could they possibly work enough hours to earn that much money compared to the rest of us? It's about what we put into the time. Yep. And by limiting that, we force ourselves to get better at what we do. And we force ourselves to work from a higher level of priority. We can't screw around at the coffee machine, yep. right? We can't empty out. I hate playing inbox zero. I think it's a waste of time. No offense yeah. if anybody does that, yeah. but it's not a priority. What I want to do is ask, like, yep. if I'm going to spend 30 minutes or less in my inbox, what are the priorities I want to get out? Because that's where right. other people's priorities live. And so... It, it forces you to play a game of how effective can I be in a limited time frame. Yeah. And then you get the transition out. So my encouragement for people, one, put boundaries, find a space in your home, that's your workspace, and then come up with a ritual. Like my ritual that I shared with you it came from a friend of mine, Reed Moore. He was in the Air Force. He worked in one of those missile things that was high stress. He would come home. And he found that if he went and kind of hung out with family, he just wasn't there. So he had a ritual. He would take off his watch. He would take off his uniform and put on home clothes. And he would often leave his phone there. But Mm -hmm. it was that idea of this is my transition. I'm taking off my superhero outfit and I'm putting on this other thing. Boom. Find a ritual that kind of signals to your mind. I'm moving to this other mode now. And it's helpful if you struggle with that transition. 
And you mentioned, especially if you're a hybrid where there's days, maybe you're at home for on Friday or Monday morning and you don't know when you walk by the computer, maybe it's after five, oh, I have another email or something I forgot to do. And then all of a sudden, like you think you're done, but you're back on the computer. You have to cut it and say, like, I'm done. Right. Give it the best you can. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's even worse. Our smartphones now we can get on Slack or email at any time, but it's a choice, right? I have all of my notifications turned off on my phone. The only thing it can do is remind me when my next appointment is 15 minutes before that. Yep. Every time the apps download, I have to go back and reset it because the phone wants to beep and burp and buzz, but I have to manage that because what I don't want is a three by six object that lives in my back pocket to rule my life. Absolutely. And you mentioned inbox zero is a fallacy. It's another thing, best-selling authors and people that write books that the world reads. Seth Godin says the same thing. Inbox zero is a fallacy. It's just a lie and don't even try because there's no one shaking your hand after you do it. And it's right. It's just a fallacy. It's a lie. It's a fallacy for me that I have to do all of my household chores before I relax, before I sit down with my wife. Yeah. So that is me probably could get lay on a couch and talk to someone and get cured of that. So all I will say is don't pretend it's a productivity tool. If that's what you're doing, if it gives you peace of mind and you can sleep at night because you do inbox zero more power to you. That's you in the dishwasher, man. That's me (laughs) and my little household chores. We all have those habits. Otherwise though, I do not think it is it's a finish line that people have established that means nothing for in the world of productivity and output. Nothing. But if it helps your mental health, go for it. That's the caveat I put on it. Because, man, mm-hmm. I just coach my people, stop playing that game. Stop mm-hmm. playing that game if you really want to be maximize your productivity. Mm-hmm. I've also found some people, it's anxiety. They're always yeah. afraid there's something unattended yeah. that's going to hurt them. And I'm like, if that's where you have to go, then give it a time limit. Yeah. I do 30 minutes in the morning. I do 30 minutes at lunch. I do 30 minutes at the end of the day. And I try not to be in there the rest of the time. That's awesome. Getting back to the book, something I don't know if I struggled with, but I I had to think about this. You talk about, A, thinking big in the beginning. Think go big, like thinking big. But then you say go small gives your best chance to succeed, right? So it's like think big initially, like what's your one thing? But then when you start, you're going micro, like the smallest possible step. Could you speak to that? It's a, it's very counterintuitive. But the success model of the one thing, it's not about a sprint. It's about the tortoise and the hare. And we're advocating for, to be the tortoise every single day. And you've heard other people articulate, I think James Clear says 1% mm-hmm. every day. Yep. And people underestimate how much that'll compound over the year. They also underestimate how much more sustainable it is than the college student that waits till the day before to write their term paper. That is a horrible way to get focused, to use deadlines and last minute urgency. But if you can build the discipline to write one page a day, guess what? In less than a year, you'll have your novel. But so we usually teach people the smallest dominoes, what we call it principle. There's a very famous graph in the book where if you take a two inch domino, it'll knock over one that's 50% larger, a three inch domino, and that'll knock over a four and a half inch domino. And and without a spreadsheet, I can't go beyond that. I'm a French English major, but basically by the 18th domino, it would, that two inch domino would have built up so much momentum, 50% larger, it would knock over one as big as the tower of Pisa. Yep. Crazy. And then you can go 54, I think it would reach all the way to the moon. Yeah. So people underestimate how things build momentum and compound. Yeah. And the problem is high achievers, like a lot of people who probably listen to your podcast, they look up and they're like, that 18th domino is already leaning, right? The Tower mm-hmm. of Pisa. I'm just going to skip all of this other stuff and go right okay. to that. Yep. And it's not possible. Like we take on too much too early and we neglect to build momentum and the habit the habit of showing up every day and not going over that domino. I think it was Peter Drucker who said people overestimate what they can achieve in one year and mm-hmm. underestimate what they can achieve in five. Yeah. And the older I get, the more that rings true for me. So that's where we're going. Start mm-hmm. small, something yep. you know you can win at, build momentum and then build on that momentum versus racing ahead and trying to take shortcuts. Shortcuts might get you there faster one time, yeah. but you skip learning. and awareness and perspective that might serve you over the long haul. 
Yeah, a couple of things there. One, a great quote from the book talking about how starting small and getting going, you quote Mark Twain, you put the secret of getting ahead is getting started, but the secret of getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming tasks into small, manageable tasks and starting with the first one, right? And there's another author, John Acuff, who I, I find you guys very similar and a great guy. I mean, it's just great. He's also from Memphis. I, I tried to connect with him on Twitter and he never responded. I, so. I'm here too. I invited him on the podcast. Like you, Seth Godin, like Acuff. I can't get in touch with him, man. So call him out. But he, in one of his books is get your goal and cut it in half. You want to be successful. Whatever you think you want to do, cut it in half, get going. It's funny is, though. Right. It's funny. I would love to debate that with him because Gary would say, take your goal and double it. And now okay. build a plan and start with a small step. Yeah. And that idea of aiming far above it, because we often, like, how many times does the plan meet reality and things fall apart? Yeah, sure. If you're aiming just enough of what you need, you'll almost always fall short of what you need. So going ahead and aiming higher, but again, starting small. So think big. Yep. I don't know if that's in his activity phase or in that's his planning phase. So I don't have context for that. Understood. I just love that small possible thing just to get the process going, that little domino, and you just start rolling from there. It is, the momentum is yeah. such a magical thing once you get going, right? You get going, start running oh. downhill. It's just awesome. couple myths that are dispelled in the book. There's a bunch. I'll just take two or three if you could speak to. Here's myth number one. Everything is equally important and we must do it all. This book just blows that myth up if you could speak to that. This is the 80-20 principle, the Trado, and it's just this principle that the minority of what we do gives us the majority of what we want. Not all things matter equally. And if we take a moment and ask the question of all the things that I could do, what are the handful that I should, and separate out the truly important stuff from the just the running around and emptying the dishwasher stuff, yep. and then prioritize those things. If I only did one thing on this should list, what's it? Great. Yep. Now, if I could do two, what would be my number two? Great. I'd knock out those two. What would be my number three? And we do an exercise. We call it Extreme Pareto. And on average, people will take a list of 25 to 30 things that they have to do. And they'll, at the end of it, have a list of less than five priorities they can attack. And it's the difference between being busy and being productive. Yeah. Right. People are busy all the time, but they're not really being productive. Acting yeah. in your priorities means you're being productive. So many days I feel like I was busy, but like, what I do at the end of the day? Nothing. Entered emails. There's nothing of like, wow, this made me a better person, better leader, made my team better. It's just all nitpicky stuff. How about myth number two? Multitasking gets more done. That's the myth number two. You just blew it's out of the water. It's crazy how persistent this is. I mean, yeah. people see a bunch of stuff on their list and instead of prioritizing, they'll say, well, I'll just do two at once. And I mean, basically when you're multitasking, you do everything more poorly, right? You make more mistakes. You do things, things can take as much as twice as long. It literally lowers your IQ worse than being stoned. So there's sure. a reason when people's lives are at stake, if you drive a bus or pilot an airplane, if you're a surgeon, you're not allowed to multitask. Yeah. The surgeon <laughs> can't even pick up their own tools. We've all no. watched ER, hemostat, you know, and someone just puts it in their hand. They're supposed to be focused because someone's life is at stake. And the question I like to ask people when they're trying to rationalize multitasking through their most important moments, being on their phone at the dinner table, glancing at the football score when they should be reading to their kids, yep. watching Apple News or Twitter or whatever while they're supposed to be doing their core work. I said, whose life is at risk when you do that? It's their life, not literally at risk. But the quality of it is when they're constantly cheating on their most important work. Yeah. Could you have multiple one things? Like when I'm at work, my one thing is this. But once I transfer over home, there's another one thing I'm working on. Is that fair to say? Like you switch throughout the day with the one thing. Yeah. I think at different times, in different time periods, your one thing shifts very easily. I mean, in the morning, I've got two teenagers. Mm -hmm. One of my core Same priorities way. is get them out the door so they can get to school on time hopefully with their lunches intact. And so that's not a small feat. I mean, getting them to brush their teeth too is like at bonus points at this time. But you can organize your day around different habits that make your priorities happen. My wife and I have just kind of attuned our bodies to getting up pretty early so we can work out together in the morning and read in the morning. Awesome. 
And so before anybody else is bugging us or asking us to do things they want us to do, we've knocked out a really important health priority. Reading for me is essential to both my happiness and my professional life. Mm -hmm. And frankly, doing it together is really important to both of us. So by building some habits, we're knocking out some really big priorities. And you can do that in multiple areas. We have a page. It's the only page in the book that I've memorized. So the American white hardcover, the yellow British paperback, page 114, there's seven circles. And I usually ask people if we're doing a workshop to go through each of them and try to figure out what their one thing would be in each area of their life. And then find out when can I do those things on a regular basis? And my wife and I have date night. It's on Wednesday night because we found that it was easier to get babysitters and make that a habit. We've done easily more than 500 dates since we built that habit. That's so awesome. Yeah. Different one things in different areas of your life. It's not cheating. Just don't focus on building all those habits at once. Yep. And do you mentioned, one, and when yep. it's done, do the next. Totally makes sense. That's the page where I just blew up. It killed highlighters. It's uh, your physical health. You mentioned spiritual, personal life. We're actually changing that. I'll just say this. COVID taught us a lesson. Gary and I focused on our physical health a lot. We just cross out the word physical. Now, because people ask, well, what about my mental health? And I would have said, well, it lives in the health circle, but it feels like we've left it out. Yep. And so all future editions, you've got an OG one, are just going to say health. And I think that's inclusive of our mental and physical health. And man, if anything, these last few years, crazy markets and crazy times has taught us that we do need to manage our mental health as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I could talk about this book all day, but to be respectful of your time. Just a couple of fun questions just to wrap up. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what do you think that lesson would be? Well, I want them to act in their priorities. And I'll give you a simple hack. We have a community that we run. I think we have a little more than 2,000 members today. And one of the most successful habits we invited them to do that had more impact on their lives than anything else is this simple thing. In the morning, look at your goals before you pick up your phone. And that act of reminding yourself, what am I trying to say yes to, right? What am I trying? It's always trying, right? Forget Yoda for a second. Every day we're going to fail a little bit. But if we're always reminding ourselves of what we said yes to, the no's come a little easier. And so we saw more reported levels of success and productivity from that simple habit of just looking at your goals before I jump into email or social media, where you get caught up in other people's priorities. So there's a simple, actionable takeaway for people. What's your big goals? Look at them every morning before you get caught up in the world. You're familiar with Ryan Holiday, another Austin native. Are you familiar with Ryan? Yeah, we've, we've hung out a few times. I was actually at his bookstore a few weekends ago. He mentions don't touch your phone for the first hour of the day or something very similar to what you said. That's great. Jay, if you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? You know, what I've really enjoyed is I launched a newsletter called The 20 Percenter. And it's at the20percenter.com. It's free, but I've never had a weekly writing deadline. Writing books can take years. And even though I would show up to write every day, I might research for three weeks before I would start transitioning to the writing part of a chapter. Mm-hmm. And this has forced me to every single week turn out finished work and go through that process. And my assistant was like, why are you doing this? And because I'm not trying to monetize it, I'm just like, to me, it's a fitness routine for my writer self. Mm -hmm. It's forcing me to build a habit around one of the things that makes me happy. I want to make an impact. It makes me happy. And so, and I'm just building my writing muscle. So that has been fun. My wife complains because sometimes I'm writing on Saturday and Sunday mornings, but I'm like, I could be watching a soccer game and you wouldn't complain. And I'm having fun because this is something I've chosen to do. Just kind of like a workout. It does feel like work, but I know it's making me stronger. So anyway, that's been a real passion project this year for me. I appreciate you sharing that. Last two questions. Jay, if you could spend the day with anyone, historical figure, business leader, alive or dead, world leader, who would it be? Oh, man, that's such a hard question. My brain goes so many places like 
do, do I hang out? Hemingway would be fun, right? We could go fishing and talk about writing. Awesome. Um, but maybe I would be sad if he was drunk the whole time and shooting a machine gun at sharks. You know, maybe Tallulah Bankhead, like one of the most quotable, funny, smart people that ever lived. So I go to maybe that age, the 20s and 30s and 40s, and find someone really, really interesting. Because back then, they didn't have the the distractions we had today. And yeah. some people did some really amazing things. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Last question. Jay Papa Zen. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Well, it's some version of what's your one thing. I have dominoes tattooed on my forearms. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know that my first job is to be a good husband and a good father. And those remind me every day what my one thing is. And if I don't violate those things, then my world's pretty clear. That's so what's your one thing? Like for me, I used a domino yep. to say that. But if people would constantly remind themselves of that, that's why we put the instead of quotes and everything on the back of our book, we just put a big question mark. Yep. And a lot of people keep it on their desk with the question mark to remind themselves to be asking that question. That is awesome. The author. The guest, Jay Papazan, the book is the one thing, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results, one of my favorite books of all time. It's been an honor, Jay, to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Just so much wisdom. Jay, if people are looking for you and your work online, where can we find you? I told you there's only like a handful of Papazans around, and I'm the only Jay Papazan in the world so far. <laughs> so, um, that works really well for Google. Yeah. The one thing.com is a great place to find a lot of what I'm doing. The 20 percenter, obviously, you know, every week you'll get a little dose of me. Those would be the first two things I think of. Okay. I will put both of them in the show notes and uh, Jay Papazan. I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's been such an honor to speak with you and uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. We see nothing but the show. I love your passion. I mean, I, I can tell you're so passionate about sharing and getting the most and you prepared so thoroughly for this. So I just want to compliment you for being a, a fabulously prepared host. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And your next project, whenever that comes out, I'd love to have you back on somewhere down the road to talk about what you're doing next. You got it. Hey, it's Joe Chickarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.